Today's scripture reading is from John 13, 33 through 38, and 15, 12 through 17. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered him, Will you, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. You, if you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know of his master's doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have not made known to you. You did not choose me, but I ch chose you and appointed you that you go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so, what, so that whatever you ask my Father in, his, in my name, he, will, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Jack. It takes a lot of courage to get up in front of all these people and read all those words. Thank you, buddy. You did awesome. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Christ Prez. I'm Scott, uh, along with Russ and David and several others. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Prez, and it's, it's my privilege uh, to talk uh, this morning about friendship. Uh, uh, to our church family, to those of you who are here as, as our guests, we welcome you. And um, uh, this is also the, the second uh, sermon in our current series that we're calling All In. It's about our vision as a church, uh, and we're going to be getting more and more specific uh, about what we're going to be going for uh, as a church over the next you know, 5, 10, and even 20 years. But uh, today we're going to talk about friendship, and, and one of the reasons why uh, and you're going to hear this a lot, and, and this is really the basis for the Connect season. If you haven't gotten into a Connect group yet, highly encourage that, uh, especially if you're not relationally connected at Christ Prez. As a large church, we need you to take some initiative uh, and, and put yourself on those on-ramps that have been uh, created and cultivated and curated by our staff uh, into opportunities for community. Connect groups are one of those opportunities. Our goal, our desire is for every single person uh, who, who calls Christ Pres their church to have at least five people that they would call friends, people that you could say they know me, they believe in me, they know my struggles as well as my dreams and, 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 and aspirations and those sorts of things, and I know them. And so, Today we're going to talk about that, but, but I think the very first thing I want to do is acknowledge the elephant, elephant that's in the living room, and that's that every single one of us on some level is lonely. You know, Thomas Wolfe said this, the whole conviction of my life now rests upon the belief that the sense of loneliness 
Far from being rare and a curious phenomenon, peculiar to myself and to a few other solitary people, loneliness is the central and inevitable fact of human existence. I think he's right. And, you know, on on one hand, technology has connected us more than we've ever been connected in the history of the world. I I can't remember what percentage they said of the world that's on Facebook right now. Did you know that there was once a time, you know, teenagers, did you know there was once a time when people didn't carry their phones around with them? I mean, when I first got into ministry 18 years ago, I was just longing for the day that I would have a flip phone. Uh, There was a time where you did not have that instant access to your friends. You actually had to find a place to call them, and you had to depend on them being close to the phone that you were calling in order to connect. Now we have text messages, we have social media, we have likes and follows and, and all the rest. And yet, we are more isolated than we've ever been. You know, Forbes magazine did a uh, piece or covered a study that was done uh, on the, the effects of social media. And one of the, 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 uh, the, the most obvious conclusions from this study was this, when social media interaction goes up, so does depression and the sense of isolation and the sense of being alienated from the human community. Why? Because, because this sort of comparison, which as, as Roosevelt said, is the thief of joy, this comparison thing happens, right? Why isn't my life like their life? And of course, everybody else is looking at your life online as you edit the hard things out of your life and put only the, the beautiful looking things. Uh, you know, after the 15th selfie, you take your favorite one and you put it out there and everybody thinks your life's going perfect and all of us are dying inside because of this comparison thing that happens on social media. And so we have a lot more fans, we have a lot more followers than we do friends, and and it's created a loneliness crisis, and it's escalated the loneliness crisis. You know, a lot of people think celebrities have a lot of friends. A lot of people think that pastors have a lot of friends and aren't lonely. A lot of people think that, you know, business executives and leaders and such, they can have all the friends that they want and school administrators and such. It's not true. It is not true. It's one of the most isolating things in the world to be at the top of an org chart, the top of an industry, or standing on a stage. One of the loneliest things in the world that could happen. You need to know this as somebody who lives in Nashville and who occasionally bumps into people who are, you know, at the top of something. I remember in seminary, there were two pastors who committed suicide, two pastors who took their own lives, and, 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 and everybody was shocked until their suicide notes were read. One of them was wrestling with a secret sin and had been for years, and nobody in his congregation knew about it. And the other one was battling secretly with depression, and nobody knew about it. And the reason why he didn't tell anybody was he was afraid he was going to lose his ministry if people knew that he was on Prozac. We are lonely. And and, and I think the the important thing to say at the beginning is this, we're lonely not because there's something wrong with us, we're we're lonely because there's something right with us. We're created in the image of a communal God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one for all eternity past, all eternity future. We, We are vitally connected to that kind of God, which means when we feel lonely and disconnected and disjointed and alienated, it means there's something right that needs healing in us. 
You know, the, the first malediction, we, we end our, our, our services with a benediction, which is Latin for good word. The first malediction in the Bible, God spoke it into paradise before anything went wrong. And that malediction was it's not good for people to be alone. It's not good. And so, there, there are a few building blocks to friendship that I think the church of Jesus Christ especially offers tremendous opportunity and on-ramps and also an emotional resource for. And so, I want to spend the next few moments talking about that under four headings, transparency, diversity, love, and the friend above all friends. And so, let's start with transparency. Verse 15, Jesus, King of everything, Lord of the cosmos, says, I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Everything that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. I have self-disclosed. I've put myself out there for you. I've put my heart on a table right in front of you for you to feast upon. My body, my blood, my life, my, my joys, my dreams, my griefs, my sorrows, my laments, I'm putting them out there for you. The sharing of secrets, making yourself vulnerable, letting yourself be known, what, an, what a daunting prospect for those of us who are much afraid of being exposed and rejected, of being known and not loved. So, the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre wrote this incredibly inaccessible book called Being and Nothingness. It's really hard to read, and so I, I've depended on others to, particularly philosophers, to interpret it for me. But there's, a, there's one particular chapter in, 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 called The Look in that book, and it, it, it really is about this, this sense of alienation that, that we as human beings all feel. And, and the look, this chapter talks about a man who is alone in the park, and he's feeling really good about being alone in the park, and then he notices in the distance the silhouette of another human being. And then he gets extremely nervous because he starts, you know, feeling as if this other human being is looking at him. And, and, and Sartre, you know, continues to unpack that experience and says that the man in the park began to develop and experience this terror about being underneath the gaze he was talking about how much we, we get unnerved when, when somebody's looking at us. I mean, how long can we keep eye contact even with the person we trust the most in the world, let alone people we don't know or people that we're not sure we can trust? And then, then Sartre's man in the park suddenly discovers that in the distance, it's not an actual human being. It's, it's a mannequin. And, and, and so this flood of relief, you know, overcomes him that, that he's not being looked at like he thought he was. And what Sartre is tapping into is the universal human fear of being known, because if you know me, you might reject me, you might exclude me, you might write me off. And this is why we become, you know, what you could call social chameleons, right? The chameleon is this little reptile, right, that has the ability to change color and texture of its skin, you know, to, to blend into its environment in order to protect itself from predators or potential predators. 
But we become social chameleons. We're a different person at home than we are at work, than we are, you know, at play, than we are alone behind a computer screen. We're, we're, we're different people in different environments. We are social comedians, or comedians, chameleons. Some of us are social comedians. But all of us, on some level, are social chameleons and, and have given ourselves to image management. Authenticity has been replaced by reputation management. I mean, this is, this is true of ministers. You know, I, here's one thing I can say about my, my 18 years of ministry. I have never cut a congregation short on a sermon. And part of the reason is I want to honor Jesus and I really want to serve you well. And part of that, another part of the reason is I really want you to like me. I don't want to be exposed or rejected or discarded or excluded or written off. And that's part of the reason why I work really hard, especially at the public aspects of what I do. In my first ministry job, I was brought onto a team at a church, you know, in a city that was really big into football. You know, here it's, you know, the SEC, there it was the Big Ten, right? Every Monday morning. I hate football, by the way. I don't hate it, but it's not my… I'm not a big football person. Forgive me. <laughs> Sorry, Nate. I know you play in college and stuff, but… but there would be a Monday football debrief of, of the weekend's college games. And, and what I would do is I, I would get, there was this thing called a newspaper back then, and I would get this thing called the sports page, and I would read it and, 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 and bone up on everything that was in the sports page so I could have credibility, so I could come in and fake it in order to make it socially with, with this new staff that I was part of. But there was this alien feeling inside of me. I'm not being myself. I'm not being authentic. I want to talk about music and basketball not football, but these guys don't care about music and basketball. And, and, and so it was either run the risk of, 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 you know, putting, you know, my love for, you know, indie rock and, you know, Sufjan Stevens and, you know, all that kind of weird stuff that football people don't really get into as much typically, or pretend that I loved football. I played in fourth grade. I had my body snapped into as a running back, you know, when, when Joey Figuerella, you know, hit me. And so football's been a source of trauma. It still is, SEC folks. <laughs> I don't get it, but I love you. Contrast that with the Apostle Paul, who was a friend of Jesus, who in 2 Corinthians 12 puts his heart out there. I've got a thorn in my flesh. I'm suffering. I'm sick. Putting it right out there for the people that he's serving. 1 Timothy 1, you know, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And he talks about his history of having been a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent bully. Romans 7, he shares a secret sin, right? About his coveting, about how he cannot find contentment with the life that God's given him because he's always looking at the lives that God's given other people around him. And he's transparently putting that out in front of people who could crush him, exclude him, reject him for that. Where does he get the emotional well for this kind of transparency and authenticity? Romans 8.1, which comes right after Romans 7. There is therefore now no condemnation. There's no shame. There's no rejection. There's no being discarded. There's no being overlooked. 
for those who are in Christ Jesus, the friend who sticks closer than a brother. You know, here's the great thing about transparency, too. Did you know that your transparency, that your risk-taking invites others into community, invites others into real community. Your transparency helps people understand that they are not alone. This is why Celebrate Recovery is one of our most thriving missional communities here at Christ Press, because we've got a lot of addicts in our community. We've got a lot of addicted people. And what an addicted person needs to hear is, I am so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic, or I look at porn 20 times a day. Because then the lonely, isolated struggler can say, me too. Can we find community together and help one another along in this struggle? That's why Alcoholics Anonymous is so successful. The success rate is, is so significant. It's because people come out of hiding and say, I struggle, and others say, I do too. I told you this before, two years into my ministry, it took me two years in my ministry to acknowledge to the whole church what the St. Louis pastor was terrified of acknowledging to his, and that is that I've had seasons myself of anxiety and depression. I've had one or two since I've come here, by the way, short ones. But the day that I first did that, one of the members in our church came up to me, this was two years in, said, you know, I think you're a good communicator, but I'm not really impressed by that. I want you to know that today is the day that you became my pastor because you identified a struggle in you that's also in me. There's, there's a liberation. There, there's a communal thing that happens when we take the risk of being known. And I know it's hard and I know it's terrifying, but if you know that you're in Christ and that there's no condemnation in Him, you know, this is the resource, the wealth of emotion that God gives us to not pretend we like football or Sufjan Stevens or basketball, but to really put out the things we do, do like and love. And then I can, you know, reach out to Nate and say, man, help me understand football. Can I watch a game with you? Can you walk me through this? Because I love you and I want community with you. And so I want to know what makes you tick and why. Transparency. Diversity is another one. You know, Jesus says the word you 36 times in the short passage that Jack read to us a moment ago. 36 times. And every single time, this is where our southern vernacular comes into play, our southern dialect, every time he says y'all. You know, if you go back to the original language, you see it's all plural. 36 times he uses the plural. By this, all people will know that y'all, that you folks, are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Eugene Peterson says this, one of the immediate changes that the gospel makes is grammatical. We instead of I, are instead of my, us instead of me. You see this played out in the disciples, you know, the 12 that Jesus, you know, called in community, into community around Him, you know, to suffer with Him and rejoice with Him and eat with Him and, you know, all the things that those guys did together for those three years. And inside the 12, specifically and carefully chosen, Matthew, the government tax collector, and Simon, the anti-government zealot, neither of them, we, have, we don't have any indication that either of them left their political commitments. And yet they learn to love one another under Jesus. 
personality differences. Peter, the bull in the china shop, and John, the, the sanguine, you know, poster child for Tim McGraw, always humble and kind. Peter and John are, are not just part of the twelve, they're part of the three that Jesus invited into tight community with Himself. Social status. You've got David, who's, who's the, you know, the blue-collar guy, the son of, of a shepherd, and you've got Jonathan, who's the prince of the land, the son of a king, and they're the best of friends under Jesus, so, so close, so tight, that, that after Jonathan dies in war, David takes in Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, who has special needs, and doesn't just give him a fast pass, he, he, he gives him a daily seat, daily seat at his table. He adopts him as his own son. You know, our differences can bring out the best in us, as was the case with David and Jonathan and others. I love what C.S. Lewis says in The Four Loves when he talks about, um, you know, when his friend Charles died. So, there was Ronald, Charles, and and Jack, which is with a nickname that C.S. Lewis went by. They, They got together in pubs, and they talked philosophy and theology and history and those sorts of things. They were the best of friends, always together, inseparable, And in The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis says this after Charles died, in each of my friends there's something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights besides my own to show all of his, Ronald's, facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a joke by Charles. Far from having more of Ronald now that Charles is gone and it's just the two of us, having him to myself now that Charles, Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. True friendship is the least jealous of loves. Two friends delight to be joined by a third and three by a fourth and so on. You know, we've got people, and maybe you should do this with an election coming up. Maybe all of you should think about this as you join connect groups. We've had people, we've had people who are committed, lifelong Democrats asked to be in small groups with Republicans, not because they were on a mission to change people's political viewpoints, but, but they were on a mission to learn and understand what, what somebody else thinks and how they're motivated and why they're motivated that way. You know, you look around and, you know, we've we got a little bit of ethnic diversity. It, it, it's hard to have a ton of ethnic diversity with the five-mile radius around this property right now. However, the ethnic diversity is growing, and, and that's, a, that's an encouraging thing. I also want to encourage us to look around and, and, and understand there's all kinds of diversity here. There's economic diversity. You know, there are, there are people who make seven figures, you know, easy, in our community. And then there are also people who need the deacon's fund because they can't afford to pay their light bill. We have, that's our community, folks. And when those two groups of people get together and befriend one another and learn from one another and love one another for Jesus' sake, beautiful things like the David and Jonathan dynamic can happen. You know, generationally, 
It's a beautiful thing about our church, being an intergenerational church. Did you know that a group of people in their 20s pursued uh, a handful of people in their 70s to lead them and, and be in community with them? We, wa- we want to learn from your wisdom. We want to learn from your generation that, that has different sensibilities than ours. We want to understand what we're missing. So will you be our teacher? People, like 20, 30 people in their 20s pursuing some people in their 70s to be in community with them. And then it's a reciprocal learning experience as well. You know, the learning doesn't just go generationally down. The learning goes generationally up. That's why we're going to, you know, we're talking right now and working with the children's and youth staff to, 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 to put more and more youth and children on this stage during this moment of, of this week so that the adult world can hear from the kids' world and learn to see God and the universe and, 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 and the story of of, of creation, fall, and redemption through the eyes of those that Jesus said were the heirs of the kingdom. You know, having, having you know, children, having a more dominant voice here. In the beginning, God made them male and female. You know, we're part of a, a committedly, you know, committedly, I don't know if that's a word, but we're part of a, we're part of a denomination that's committed to what you could call a complementarian uh, understanding of male and female relationship. Uh, which, which understands, you know, the earlier chapters of Genesis when, when, when God says that He gave Eve to Adam as a helper to him, that that was prototypical for how, how the home is, is meant to work, that, that, that there is a leadership that he is supposed to take, and there is a sense of partnering that she is supposed to offer. And then you, you go to First uh, Timothy, and you see the same dynamics in the church, where, where God's established a very similar social dynamic in the church. And so, so there's a sense of complementarian gifting in the home and in the church in particular, where where God, for whatever reason, I don't quite understand it because my wife is a lot smarter than I am, but for whatever reason, I'm supposed to assume some leadership. And and, and yet there's an egalitarian understanding of influence and and of, uh, what what do you call it, Uh, consensus building rather than domineering. That's how the leadership is supposed to to be exercised, that, 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 that he listens and he follows, and that's part of how he leads oftentimes. You know, when, when the Bible says that Eve was given to Adam as a helper, do you know what that word means? It's not like this condescending word, like a three-year-old that's helping you make cookies, and, and you know, you're, you're just kind of condescending to make them feel included. It's nothing of the sort. The Bible says that God is our helper. Ezer, same exact word. When the Bible says God is our helper… And God is our strength. It's the same word that God, that, that, that God used to describe Eve in her helping role. She is going to bring to you, Adam, something that you lack. So if you've ever wondered why about half of our director staff is male and half of our director fe- staff is female, that's why. You know, if you've ever wondered why we have women advising our elders every time our elders gather, that's why. You know, because Anna the prophetess and Priscilla, the servant, the diaconal servant in the church, as it tells us in Romans, had leadership in the church. I'm sorry, Phoebe. Priscilla was a woman who taught theology to a preacher alongside her husband. And then Phoebe and Lydia, the leaders, and you know, female leaders, you know, Lydia opens a church in her own house. And so, 
We, the point being, we got to hear from one another. God made us male and female, and so, so I need to grow in, in female sensibilities just as well as women need to grow in male sensibilities in order that we might become more fully the image of God, and that's why everybody has a voice and not just one part of the community. You know, I got a text yesterday just in light of the, you know, Tulsa and Charlotte tragedies from, from a non-white person in our church just saying, look, you know, I, I, I don't want to poop the party, um, but people of color are really suffering because this is just the latest, and, 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 and it's going to be incredibly important to acknowledge the pain, especially as a church that, that, that is God's unifying agent in the world. And just in case this isn't on your radar, Pastor, we people of color would really appreciate not only an acknowledgement, but, but, but a solidarity expressed from the church of Jesus Christ. And, and, and it, thankfully, it was on my radar. But if it wasn't, I, I need you to help me understand how I can best serve you. Let, let those who are taught share all good things with those who teach. You know, our differences can bring out the best in us, but they can also confront the worst in us. You know, Peter 37, verse 37, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, really? Is that how this is going to work? You're going to lay down your life for me. And then Jesus goes on, the rooster is not going to crow until you've denied me three times, Peter. You know, so a true friend, somebody that you really have intimacy with, is also confrontational at times. A true friend is going to look at you and say, I want a different friend, and I want that friend to be you. You know, we help one another along, like Dan Ellender says, you know, intimate allies. Yeah, I've told you before, I've written about this, this friendship, but, you know, this is a relationship that I entered into, a working relationship with a guy in New York City when we started there, and this is a guy you know, he and I were different culturally. We have very different personalities. We butted heads a lot. And, and so, you know, the two pastors walk into a bar scenario occurred with us. You know, we both, you know, we decided to go out, get a beer together, work out our differences, seek understanding. We ended up publicly yelling at each other in a local New York City pub. Two pastors walk in a bar. They get in a fight. <laughs> By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, that you publicly shame one another. He came into my office the next day and he said, look, I'm committed to love you. I'm not going anywhere and I hope you're not. And he used that image that I use often with our congregation. He said, you know, you and I, we're like sandpaper. You know, we're gritty. You rub us together and it's awkward and it's, it's uncomfortable and it's, it gets hot when you rub us together. But but the more you rub us together, the more smooth we both become. And then he looked me in the eye and he says, I want you to hear this, Scott, Philippians 1.6. I am confident of this, that the God who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And I, I, I pray that you have that same hope for me. That's what friendship is. It, doesn't, it presses in. It doesn't peace out. And if you've got something abusive going on, that's different. By the way, you know, forgiveness is automatically granted for those who are in Christ, but trust is not, and so this doesn't apply to abuse. This, these are, these are, you know, tension moments. Tension moments are opportunities for growth and community. Membership in a local church means joining your imperfect self to many other imperfect selves to form an imperfect community 
that through Jesus embarks on a journey toward a better future together. That's what the church is. You're looking for a perfect church? You're not going to find it here, and you try to find it somewhere else, you're going to mess that church up and make it imperfect the moment you show up. How we view the local church, it's right here in verse 16. You, y'all, did not choose me, Jesus said. You did not choose me. I chose you. I chose y'all. I chose you for myself. I also chose you for each other. Just like I choose what kind of son, what kind of daughter you're going to have, just, just like I, I choose to write the story of your children, and sometimes the way I write the story is different than the way that you write the story, and you've got to learn to live with that. I chose you for myself. I chose you for each other. What he's saying is your family with me and your family with each other. The church is a family. It's not a consumer good. It is not a consumer good. You know, your tithes and offerings, they don't, they don't buy you the right to shame your church and your community into being something different, into, into fitting into whatever your self-centered dream is about what your community is supposed to be. A family's messy. A family's messy. A family has addicts. A family has rebels. A family has arrogant controllers. A family has non-contributors. That's what a family is. I hope that there are things, if you're part of Christ Presbyterian Church, okay, Visitors, you might never come back. You, this is your opportunity to eavesdrop on a little family moment here. If you're part of Christ Presbyterian Church, I hope sincerely and deeply for your soul that there are things about this church that you don't like. Because only when there are things about your community that you don't like will you actually have an opportunity to learn what it really means to love. If you do this during the music, you are failing to enter into a way that God is blessing somebody else. You realize that? You are saying no to something that God is saying yes to. So teenagers, you know, if you, if you don't like what the old people like to sing or, or older people, if you don't like what the teenagers like to sing, get over yourself. You know, stop listening to Kurt Cobain and start listening to Scripture. Remember Nirvana, smells like teen spirit? We are here now, entertain us. You know, there are some 10-year-old grown-ups in the church and there are some 80-year-old children with all due respect, and I say that with as much love as I can possibly say, you need to change. If you're grumpy about the way that God's choosing to bless somebody else, you are the elder brother in Luke 15. I'm not coming into your damn party because it's my, it's supposed to be my party. I am here now, entertain me. Uh-uh, that's not the way the kingdom works. That might be the way your social club works or your country club, that's not the way the kingdom works. D.A. Carson says that Christians are a band of natural enemies who learn to love one another for Jesus' sake. That is friendship on Jesus' terms. Public school people, private school people, homeschoolers, you got to love one another. you got to learn from one another and not act like you got it right. Best example of this for me in this church is my predecessor, Wilson Benton. He hails from Mississippi. I hail from New York. He's the best-dressed man in the room. Look at me. <laughs> He's very formal. I am mixed. 
I'm like Forrest Gump's box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. One day I'll come with my Trinity hymnal. The next day I'll come with a worship book. He was my teacher. I was his student. Wilson Benton leaves me a love note almost every single Sunday telling me it's the best sermon I've ever preached. I, I, I have a hard time believing I get better every single week and I never have a lemon. But look, this is a guy who's broke the norm because what usually happens when a successor comes in and changes things, the predecessor takes it personally and starts gossiping around the church and stirring up anger and dissension and friction. From day one, Wilson has said, I am behind you. I've got your back. Charles McGowan said the same thing for me. You know, if anybody is daddy to this church, it's Charles McGowan at a 15-year tenure. He's still faithful, faithful attender here along with Alice. He says, the one thing I promise you, Scott, is I will not undermine you. I will always support you. And, and he's kept that promise for five years because they understand the church's family. Love. In the text, Jesus says the word love eight times. This is the, the identifying mark of Christianity. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. This is agape. This is not the Tina Turner secondhand emotion or Shaka Khan, I feel for you, I think I love you. This is the Pat Benatar, love is a battlefield kind of love. It's patient, it's kind, it keeps no record of wrongs, it's forgiving. It perseveres, it endures, it never fails, and so on. In other words, the agape, the love of friendship is fiercely loyal. C.S. Lewis said this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to keep your heart intact, you must give it to no one. Bonhoeffer in his magnificent work on community, Life Together, said this, he who loves his dream of community more than the community, the, he who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself, as God has fashioned it, becomes a destroyer of Christian community. He enters that community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own laws, and judges the brethren. But love is the polar opposite of that. Love is charitable, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, does not carry a shaming posture, does not carry a I am here now, entertain me posture. And then there's this word encouragement all over the writings of Paul encouragement. You catch that? Put courage in other people. And how do we do that? We, we do that with words because words are powerful. Words were so powerful, they spoke creation into, into existence. You know, when Ann Voskamp stood here two years ago around Christmas time one evening and said these words, they've stuck with me ever since. She said, words have power, so speak words that make souls stronger. That's what a friend does. A friend encourages, puts courage into, does not discourage, does not extract courage from people. You know, Jesus was going away. That was the context. He was going to die, and the disciples were afraid. And what does Jesus do? He gives them courage with words. Little children, he says. That's a term of endearment. And then he says, I have loved you. It is not you who will lay down your life for me, but I will lay down my life for you. Why? Because you are my friends. Encouragement. 
You know, I love, you know, thus far, one of, one of my favorite, if not my favorite country lyrics, which has been an acquired taste. So like, I, football has a chance with me. I've, I've actually grown to love country music, as many of you have evangelized that art form to me in the last four or five years. The, the, the Tim McGraw song, you know, always stay humble and kind, beautiful. Because of what that anonymous person once said, you got to be kind because everybody that you meet is fighting a hidden battle. I snapped at the guy at the post office yesterday, and I had to turn around, take an extra 30 minutes out of my day to go back and say, man, I'm so sorry. Last thing I want to do is make somebody's day worse. I took my stress out on you. I apologize. You know, like like we either suck life out or we give life. What are we going to be? As ambassadors of the kingdom of God, let's be life givers. And when we take life, let's, let's go back and pour more life in. You know, Ben Ellis was mentioned by uh, Russ Ramsey, you know, beloved teacher in Christ Presbyterian Academy, uh, was for a time a member of Christ Presbyterian Church and then went with Randy Drawn to plant Midtown Fellowship some years ago. And um, you know, Ben was just somebody who loved people with intentionality, and I, one thing that really stuck with me, I'm almost done, one thing that really stuck with me was when his friend Chris Bolton got up, used to be a neighbor of Ben, and said, Ben, for three months, I was going through a really hard time in my life, for three months, Ben showed up at, at my doorstep every single night for three months. That's about 100 days. 100 days straight, Ben showed up at my doorstep, put his hands on my shoulder, looked me in the eye, said, I love you, gave me a hug, turned around and walked home. And, 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 and Ben did not stop until he saw in my eyes that I was going to be okay. Encourage. What have you got to lose? Especially if you have been befriended by the friend above all friends, Jesus, who gives you the emotional wealth to offer friendship. This is my command. He says that you love one another as I have loved you. He's already given to us what He commands from us. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So Emerson said it's, it's one of the blessings of old friends that you can afford to be stupid with them. And this is what Jesus is saying. You can afford to be stupid with me. You know, Peter, who said, I will never abandon you, he fell harder than anybody. And who was it in the Gospel of Mark that, that, that Jesus wanted to get the point across more than anybody else that Jesus was coming to him after the resurrection? But Peter, go tell the others, Jesus said to the women at the tomb, and tell Peter that I'm coming and to take heart. When you confront, be gentle. When you encourage, be fierce. That's what we can learn from Jesus, who, to quote my friend Brandy Kellett, expanded his us as the first century Middle Eastern Jew with dark skin. He was poor, never spoke a word of English, and when he talked about reaching the ends of the, world, ends of the earth, he was thinking about us. And so, as Russ mentioned a moment ago, we live in a broken nation. Tulsa and Charlotte are the latest 
symptoms of that. And so as we come in solidarity to this table in front of us, our hearts go out to law enforcement professionals living in fear and also to people of color living in fear. We will not, we shall not, we must not dismiss the angst of our brothers and sisters. I'll leave you with what James K.A. Smith or Jamie Smith says in his latest book about the communion table. Our communion with Christ spills over into communion as His body. There is a social, even political reality enacted here at the table. There are no box seats at this table, no reservations for VIPs, no filet mignon for those who can afford it while the rest eat crumbs from their table. The Lord's table is a leveling reality in a world of increasing inequalities. And so as Russ very beautifully articulated, there is a paradox to this table. We come to this table to feast, and we come to this table to lament. So if you would please stand with me, and we're going to, in solidarity, pray uh, St. Francis's prayer, prayer for peace together as the elders and pastors and servers come forward. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Now let's please take a moment of silence to lament the broken world in which we live and prepare for the table that Jesus has provided as a solution and as hope in the face of that lament. Let's take a moment of silence, and then Russ will come lead us.